Hey, podcasters, we are super excited today. We are continuing our February uh, theme on Heart Month. It's very important to know everything about your heart and heart health. So today we're excited because Dr. Victor Abrich is with us, a cardiologist, and he's here to give us some more information on atrial fibrillation, better known as AFib, all the types that are out there, the risk factors, stroke risk, treatments, blood thinners, and then talk about the treatment options. What what can you do for all these things and um, anything else that comes up in our conversation. So thank you for joining us and let's just dive right in. Yeah, thanks so much, Sherry. So I'm actually a cardiac electrophysiologist. So I see all sorts of patients who have cardiac issues, but my primary focus is heart rhythm disorders. And in these disorders, people can have either very fast heart rhythms or very slow heart rhythms. And atrial fibrillation is one of the fast, irregular heart rhythms that I see most commonly. It seems like, you know, I know a couple of, I have a couple of friends that have atrial fibrillation. Uh, Different things happen to them when it occurs and how they feel. What actually is that? So it's a chaotic heart rhythm that comes from the top chambers of the heart. When we actually get this arrhythmia, people tend to feel very often palpitations when the heart rate is really fast. And they may also feel lightheaded, short of breath, some chest discomfort. But sometimes people may have only fatigue as their primary symptom and have heart rates that are actually within a normal range. When when do people, I mean, is it something that you're born with? Is it something that you get as you get older? Or is it some people not find out about that they have this and they just deal with the symptoms? So a lot of people develop this um, in later, like later in life. They tend to occur in their 50s and 60s, but it can be sooner. Most commonly, there are some underlying risk factors that lead to the development of this arrhythmia, the most common being high blood pressure, so uncontrolled hypertension, and undiagnosed obstructive sleep apnea, which is a condition where your airways collapse at night and you don't get enough oxygen, causing your body to stimulate you to wake up. And these bursts of adrenaline over time can lead to this arrhythmia to occur. So if I'm feeling fatigued and I have some of the other symptoms that you had talked about and I come in to see you, what kind of tests do you do to determine that versus another issue with the heart? So most commonly we'll start with an electrocardiogram. If you're in atrial fibrillation at that time, we'll know it, but a lot of people are not. And so then comes the time that we need to do some cardiac monitoring with either a 48-hour Holter monitor or we need to do what's called a 30-day event recorder, where if you have symptoms, you press a button while we're monitoring your heart rhythm. And then if you're in that arrhythmia at the time, we'll be able to tell. It's amazing how science has come in so many years. I mean, 30 years ago, my, my grandpa had a triple bypass surgery. And, you know, uh, but today you can take home equipment like that and, and get tested while you're at home. Yeah. And in fact, there are actually right now some commercial devices that uh, are on the market, including the Apple Watch, that has been shown to be able to diagnose atrial fibrillation wow. with reasonable um, certainty. So kind of going back to what you had just said, with that with that occurring, you had said that they have episodes. How long do they usually occur for? So some people may have episodes lasting under an hour. Some people may have it lasting several days. And then some people may just stay in it okay. unless they get shocked out of it. We call that a cardioversion. Okay, so if you're going in this, you're 
I'm just trying to interpret this for listeners who may not truly understand like me, I'm just learning this as well. If I'm, if I'm having an episode and my heart rhythm is going faster, does it feel like I'm in a marathon? Does it feel like I'm just not able to catch my breath? So sometimes people say that it's more so the trouble breathing. I don't know if it's necessarily a marathon, but think about it that your heart is going much faster and very irregular for a prolonged period of time when you're at rest. That feels very strange mm-hmm. to a lot of people. And to the point where if they've never had this before, they'll present to the emergency department. And that's actually most commonly where they'll be diagnosed with this. Mm-hmm. And then they, they come to you. So what would you tell a patient? What's a typical, you get the diagnosis, What's the next steps for that patient? So there are two main areas that we focus on. The first one actually is stroke risk because unfortunately this arrhythmia has association with stroke because of the fact that blood can stagnate in the left atrium when this rhythm is occurring. And depending on what kind of cardiovascular risk factors they have, they need, may need to be put on blood thinners to reduce the risk of stroke. And an atrium is a chamber of the heart? Yes. So it's uh, the top chambers of the heart. Okay. So, and how many chambers are there? So we have four chambers in the heart. The two top ones are the left atrium and the right atrium. And the two bottom ones are the left ventricle and the right ventricle, with the left ventricle being the main pumping chamber of the heart. So when someone goes into an episode, that blood could get stuck into that atrium or that chamber? Yeah, so that's why we are really concerned about stroke risk. And when we shock people out of this arrhythmia, they need to be put on blood thinners to reduce that risk following uh, for one month after that cardioversion. Okay. And then when I'm shocked out of that, I'm on my blood thinners, what's the po- probability of that happening again to me? Once you've had atrial fibrillation, it's not a matter of if you'll have it again, it's a matter of when. Mm-hmm. Um There are certain exceptions to that. And if you are in atrial fibrillation because of a secondary cause, like if you have a stressor, like an illness, or you're post-op from a surgery, very often the high amounts of adrenaline in your bloodstream can cause you to go into this arrhythmia without necessarily being a marker of you having this in the future. I've heard that on movies before where they'll go, <laughs> she's going into AFib. Is that what they're talking about? Yeah, it's possible. Okay, okay. So, um, but the problem is if you've had this and you weren't necessarily ill at the time, you just developed it, that means you're prone to having this in the future. Mm. And uh, whether or not you have episodes that occur once a year or once a month or even once a week, it really depends on how much underlying risk you have in getting back into this arrhythmia. So, The most common way to treat it, at least at the beginning, is to slow down the heart rate when you do go into it so it won't be as problematic for uh, for you in terms of symptoms. So we call that a rate control strategy. So most commonly we'll start you on a medicine from a class of drugs called beta blockers or calcium channel blockers, and it slows down your heart rate, but it doesn't prevent atrial fibrillation. So then if uh, people come to see me in the electrophysiology clinic, then I'm the one who can help deal with preventing recurrence as opposed to just controlling the heart rate. So there are two main ways to try to prevent the recurrence. Either we use antiarrhythmic drugs or we can do an invasive procedure called catheter ablation. I had read up a little bit knowing you were going to talk about ablation. What, What actually happens when you're doing that? When we do this procedure, we have the patients under general anesthesia And we use catheters uh, that go up through the femoral veins and go into the heart itself. 
and we go to the left atrium where there are these four pulmonary veins that tend to be the triggers for this arrhythmia in over 90% of cases. And our goal is to isolate them from the rest of the heart by creating an electrical fence around those four veins. So we call that pulmonary vein isolation. And there are two main strategies right now in terms of how we achieve this. The common one is called radiofrequency ablation, where we heat up tissue, basically burn it, and then it scars down. And there's a newer technique called cryoablation, where we use a special balloon that freezes the circumference or the outside of the veins, and it creates a, a more uh, continuous lesion. Both of those um, modalities are equivalent in terms of efficacy, but we usually say that on average, after one year from the ablation, about 70% of people will stay in normal rhythm, which means the recurrence rate is about 30%. However, the um, symptoms after an ablation, if there, are, if there is a recurrence, are much less likely to be as severe. So you will have probably shorter episodes, fewer symptoms, and it may not be as life-altering as it was previously. So you do these, these preventative-type things to um, help the rate control. When you feel like your heart rate is starting to increase, you, you have these methods to go into. You know, Besides the ablation, is there other things that the patient can do? I mean, deep breathing, or do they just kind of sit still, or what, what do they need to do? Yeah, really, there's nothing that uh, they can do themselves necessarily once they are in an episode. But a lot of the time, you may be able to uh, stay at home without having to go to the emergency department every single time you develop an episode. So usually when I see a patient for the first time with atrial fibrillation, we talk about when should you go to the emergency department, what is a threshold to go. Very often, if you're in the early stage of this disease, you will have paroxysmal episodes that will terminate on their own within a day or two. And very often, we'll see patients come into the emergency department, and then they'll convert out to normal rhythm on their own, just sitting there. So if they want to avoid frequent trips to the emergency department, they need to at least be seen by a cardiologist or a cardiac electrophysiologist and deal with strategies um, that they can perform at home in terms of when should they go, when should they not go. I'm sure it's so scary. I was just sitting here listening to you talk about, you know, having that first episode has to be extremely scary for those patients, not knowing what the heck's going on with their heart. First thing you think of is, I'm going to go into a heart attack, I'm sure, if you've <laughs> never had one before. So, you know, if you're listening to this, if you've never had one and this occurs, would you suggest going to the ER? Yeah, I think that if if you have any question about, uh, like your heart is really doing something very strange and you're having very uh, bothersome symptoms like chest pain, shortness of breath, lightheadedness, those are all reasons to go to the emergency department. And until we have a diagnosis, there's really um, no recommendation to stay home. Mm -hmm. So we just need to figure this out and find out why you're having these symptoms before we decide how to proceed after that. You mentioned fatigue as being a symptom. So I could have fatigue two weeks, three weeks, or months prior to the increase of heart rate? Well, it's not exactly like that. It's more so that you may not feel that the heart rate is fast. So sometimes, um, especially with people who are on certain types of medications for blood pressure, the heart rate may already be slower because of that. And so the problem lies in the fact that you're not getting the adequate cardiac output that you would otherwise have in normal rhythm. So that's why people okay. feel fatigued. So if you think about uh, how the heart beats, usually the top chamber produces about a third of the blood flow for each heartbeat. So if you're in atrial fibrillation, that top chamber is essentially quivering. 
and it's not producing any contribution to your cardiac output. Hmm. And so that's why people feel fatigued because they're just not getting the oomph that they once mm-hmm. had. That makes total sense, the way you put it there. So I've had the ablation. Um, I've, I'm doing everything you tell me to. Can a person exercise with this? Yes. So exercise actually is one of the most common ways that we can prevent this arrhythmia in the first place. If exercise could be considered a pill, believe me, <laughs> it would be a multi-million dollar industry. <laughs> and I'm not just saying this. It has actually been found that the more active individuals are, the less likely they are to have atrial fibrillation. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the problems arise when people are sedentary and overweight, and they can try to start losing weight, starting to exercise, and they may be able to reduce their episodes of atrial fibrillation. So there must be different types of AFib, right? Are there different categories of it? Because I, I also know someone who exercises regularly where she'll, be, she'll go from an up position to a down position and her heart, will, her heart rate will increase quickly and she's kind of got to grunt down to bring it back. Is that something different? Yeah, so that's actually a different arrhythmia altogether. So that's from a class of arrhythmias called supraventricular tachycardia yes, or SVT. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of arrhythmia that uh, can be stopped if you bear down, as they say, or if you put your face in cold water, mm-hmm. things like that. But that is actually completely unrelated to this. Okay. And it's actually an umbrella term because there are different types of arrhythmia depending on uh, what extra circuit you are having inside the heart. And um, people who are able to stop the arrhythmia with bearing down and things like that, that may be enough for them. But there are some people that still are bothered by these symptoms and they may not terminate with those maneuvers. So very often they'll come through the emergency department and they'll receive intravenous medicine called adenosine. And very often that medicine will stop the arrhythmia, but then um, they get put on a medication like a beta blocker to try to prevent this, but unfortunately it doesn't work all the time and they may have recurrences several times. So most of the time, actually, if they are able to see me, I would recommend doing the catheter ablation as a definitive strategy to get rid of this. If you have a documented episode on an EKG, that's really enough mm-hmm. to be able to go for a catheter ablation for SVT. When we do an ablation for them, it tends to be above 90% or even 95% success rate that they won't have it again. I don't have any of this, but there are moments where I have flutters when I'm working out. Is that something to be concerned of when people go from up to down. Um, you hear people say, oh, my heart just had it sped up and then it came back to normal. Is that, are those type of things normal for people as they age? Do you yeah, know? So, so depending on how fast the heart rate increases, uh, it really can be a normal finding or it may be an exaggerated finding. So some people may have an exaggerated heart rate with changing their posture, and that could be related to many things, but most commonly dehydration. If you're at the gym and you find that your heart rate is speeding up a little bit too much during exercise, that's very often a sign that maybe you were previously deconditioned and you haven't had enough time for your body to get used to it. Mm -hmm. Very often as we are active and you're exercising fairly regularly, we see that the vagus nerve increases the amount of tone, we call it rest and digest. So that's why athletes tend to have slower heart rates at rest. So when people who are just starting to work out and they find that their heart rates are just too fast, they just haven't had enough time for their body to get used to it. And very often it takes time to to get used to it once they've started a regular exercise program. And that makes sense. And you had also mentioned dehydration. So how much water should someone be taking every day if for a, a well hydrated heart? So that's actually a very complex question because (laughs) 
we're always kind of taught in the media that you should be drinking as much water, you know, drink as much fluid as you can. But really, it depends on if you have a structurally normal heart or not. In people whose hearts are not structurally normal, if they have a con condition called congestive heart failure, they really shouldn't be drinking more than two liters or 64 ounces of fluid per day. And so that's a big, big misconception where uh, people with this diagnosis either were never told this or mm -hmm. they uh, forget this and they un end up in the hospital with too much fluid in their body. But if your heart is structurally normal, meaning that you haven't really had congestive heart failure, there's no limits to how much fluid you can take. I would just say drink as much fluid so you're not thirsty. Okay. And so congestive heart failure, is it like if, I, if I'm drinking an over amount of water, nine glasses of water, I have congestive heart failure. It's been diagnosed. Is it like the heart's drowning in the water then? Is that why? Is it making it work harder? Yeah. So the body, for whatever reason, when you have congestive heart failure is unable to um, allow the fluids to be uh, excreted through the kidneys. And in fact, the kidneys work to try to retain fluid. And so you drink the fluid and then your body keeps it instead of you urinating it out. So very often those people end up on medications called diuretics, uh, which essentially are also known as water pills where they actually f get rid of fluid through the kidneys, through the urine. And then the heart works better because the body's working together. Right, okay. because if you have extra fluid that accumulates in the body, very often it'll go to the lungs, and that's why people get shorter breath. Okay. And then it can also accumulate in their legs, so they may have leg swelling, or in their abdomen, and their clothes start to fit tighter. That makes total sense. So, um, okay, hydration was one. What about stress on the heart? Like, so uh, it's a huge component. I read a lot about it, um, the effects of how it physically changes the body. What about the heart? Yeah, so stress is no good for anybody. <laughs> and with regard to the heart, it can do a lot of things, unfortunately. So with regard to, let's say, we circle back to atrial mm -hmm. fibrillation. So very often, a lot of people will go into this arrhythmia if they have a big stressor happening in their lives. So it can be either something emotional or it can be something physical where they're ill. Probably the emotional episodes of atrial fibrillation are less likely, I would say, but they're not impossible. It just has to do with if you have a lot of stress on the body, you have a lot of adrenaline circulating, and that's going to increase your risk of going into this arrhythmia. Mm -hmm. But in terms of long term, I'd say that stress probably is more harmful in terms of development of coronary artery disease. We see that people who have risk factors like diabetes, cholesterol, in addition, if they have a type A personality or if they're constantly stressed out, they're more likely to develop plaque in those arteries that can lead to future risk of heart attack. And yeah, I mean, I, I think the body's smart. So when it's stressed out, it's that fight or flight. And sometimes that fight becomes too much of a fight for it with the stress. So, you know, it's one thing for our podcasters that if they are having all these scenarios in their life happening at one time to just, again, talk to your cardiologist about it. So there's always help for every, every condition in some way or another. So what are the different types of atrial fibrillation? So the... Types really have to do with how long you're in it. So in people who have short episodes, we call it paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. And those tend to be the people that are most likely to benefit from catheter ablation to prevent this arrhythmia. Um, if you have this arrhythmia that stays for seven days or longer, then we start to call it persistent atrial fibrillation. And you can't get out of it until unless you're cardioverted. Um, and so those people have a, that basically means that the disease has progressed to the point that the triggers, those pulmonary veins are not the only reason that they're going to AFib. 
They may have some scar tissue that is starting to develop within that left atrium that is altering the way that electricity conducts in that chamber, making it more likely for them to sustain the arrhythmia. And then you have people who have long-standing persistent atrial fibrillation or even permanent atrial fibrillation if they're in it for prolonged periods of time or they basically decide, I don't want to go back into normal rhythm. Now, why would someone choose not to go back into normal rhythm? It's more so that they've had either a discussion with their physician that, you know, we've tried to put you in normal rhythm, but these methods have failed to keep you in normal rhythm. Let's just keep you in um, atrial fibrillation as long as we keep the rates slow. So that a lot of people do just fine. They don't have any symptoms, especially those people who are probably advanced in their age. But I would say that everyone deserves a trial to be put back into normal rhythm since the normal rhythm is the way we're born with. And atrial fibrillation, although technically a lot of people can be asymptomatic with it, most people have some degree of symptoms. You had said one of the one of the types was having it longer than seven days. Are you in the hospital during that time? Or are you just living with it at home? So most people, they just live with it at home. Unless they're having very fast rates, they may not come to the emergency department. I can't um, imagine living with that, you know, choosing that for your whole life. But I guess if it's your normalcy at some point. Yeah, so that's the thing. Some people, they can get used to almost anything sometimes. So mm-hmm. if people uh, have this rhythm, they may not be aware that something actually has changed until they come into the office several months later and they're, they're in this rhythm and they've been in it for a while. So that's why, you know, they sometimes present as having fatigue as their common symptom. But then there's also the uh, group of people who are completely asymptomatic, even when the arrhythmia is really fast. And in those people, they sometimes end up in the hospital with congestive heart failure because the heart function is weakened. Mm -hmm. Just imagine if you were forced to be on a treadmill for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and not allowed to rest. That's what's happening to the heart if you're Mm -hmm. in atrial fibrillation for prolonged periods of time. And so you can end up with what's called tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy, where the function of the heart is impaired to the point where you're starting to retain fluid in this condition called congestive heart failure. Mm -hmm. And so in those people, it's really vital that we restore the normal rhythm to allow their hearts a chance to recover. And so, you know, most commonly, we'll start with the medications to try to prevent the heart from staying AFib. We'll do a cardioversion. And in certain people, they would be candidates for catheter ablation to, to prevent this. Can you have as many ablations as possible? I mean, is, can you have, there's no, there's no number, there's no magic number. You can have three ablations and that's it. And then we go to this procedure. Is it just really up to physical of the heart, how the heart looks? Yeah. So the way I look at it is the more ablations you have, the more diminishing returns there are. So usually we say about 70% success rate one year from the ablation. And then if there's recurrence, then we can take you back for ablation. And again, we give you 70% success rate. And again, why is there only 70%? Well, most commonly is because whatever fence we built uh, to isolate those pulmonary veins may be broken down by the body at some point. Mm-hmm. So we can go back in for a second procedure to patch up that hole that's in that fence that we created, and that may be enough. But then in people who have advanced forms of the disease, it may be other areas inside that left atrium that could be triggering the arrhythmia beyond those pulmonary veins. And so we can do additional ablations to try to target those triggers or even break up the chamber in smaller pieces to make it less likely for the arrhythmia to stay conducting in that chamber. But uh, those methods, unfortunately, have diminishing returns, as I said earlier. 
So then why can we just do something that has a hundred percent success rate? Well, there, there actually is that option, but we reserve it for kind of a last uh, line uh, strategy. So imagine if we were able to disconnect the uh, atria from the ventricles so that the impulses were not able to conduct to the bottom chambers. So we actually have the procedure called AV node ablation so that you wouldn't be able to feel atrial fibrillation even if it's occurring. And, but the requirement is that we have to put in a pacemaker to take over your heart rhythm prior to that ablation so that you become dependent on the pacemaker, but then your atrial fibrillation will no longer cause symptoms. So that pacemaker is just in one chamber of the heart, controlling one chamber of the heart. Right. Well, it depends uh, exactly on what your specific situation is, but very often we can do either a single chamber pacemaker or we do a dual chamber or sometimes three chamber pacemaker as well. That is amazing. I am so, uh, I could talk a lot longer on that kind of stuff because I can visually see the fence around the, the, the chamber when you talk about it and, and, and understand it much better than if someone, if I was reading it on a piece of paper. So um, let's go back to, you talked about high risk of stroke with this. What are some signs and symptoms of stroke? So the most common sign or symptom is really when people have weakness in their arm or leg or if they have numbness in one part of the body or if they have a facial droop, uh, slurred speech. Um, those are all signs of a stroke and they need to be seen at the emergency department immediately. Do people that have AFib have, you had said, how much of a higher risk for stroke? So, yeah, so depending on what their stroke risk is, they can have as high as uh, 7 to 8% risk Per, uh, or risk of stroke per year compared to the general population, which is 1%. Does so, it occur while they're having an episode? So that's not always the case. So sometimes people will actually come in with a stroke and be found to be in atrial fibrillation, and that's actually the first diagnosis. That's the first time they've been found to have this arrhythmia. But strokes don't always happen at the time of an episode. They can happen actually completely unrelated times, and partly it's really not completely understood why that is, but it's because that at some point when the blood stagnated in the left atrium and caused the clot, the clot didn't leave the heart until much later. And that's what caused the stroke. The stroke. Okay, yeah. so you, if they have the numbness of the arm, the face also you said as Facial well. Facial droop, yeah. So sometimes we'll see that if someone can't do a full smile, like half the face is actually drooping. That's one of the common... Uh, symptoms of a stroke. Okay. And as far as um, cholesterol, can we talk? I mean, we've done a podcast on cholesterol and knowing your numbers. What What's the significance of cholesterol with, is there any with AFib or is there anything I know with stroke, but then doesn't that put you to a higher category of risk if you have all three of them? Yeah. So with cholesterol, it's not directly related to atrial fibrillation per se, but it does count as a possible contributor to the risk of coronary artery disease. And if you have a stroke that's unrelated to atrial fibrillation with development of plaque in the arteries that supply the brain, those actually do contribute to your annual stroke risk if you do have atrial fibrillation. So how do we actually decide what your stroke risk is? We actually count up a few cardiovascular risk factors and we add them up to a score, uh, what's called the CHADS-VAS score. It's an acronym. But essentially, if there's any history of congestive heart failure, if there's diabetes, hypertension, if there's been a previous stroke, if you have any evidence of vascular disease, including coronary artery disease, or if you're a woman, unfortunately, you have higher risk as well. And the risk also increases with age. 
And so we also assess uh, age into that scoring system. Why being a woman would it put you at a higher risk? That's a very good question. I don't have the answer <laughs> to. They always but, say hormones. <laughs> uh, but based on the studies, they've shown that unfortunately women are at somewhat higher risk of stroke from atrial fibrillation. So when we talk about being on a blood thinner, being a woman unfortunately already adds a point to your stroke risk. Wow. I mean, there's positives. Don't get me wrong, being a woman, but you know, you hear things <laughs> like this and I want to go out and exercise. So <laughs> is there anything as far as post? Okay, so I have AFib. I had a stroke. What would be the recommendations now? Exercise and just medication, watching what you're eating. I mean, does eating certain foods help or hinder AFib or stroke? So with regard to foods, it's not been clearly shown that foods have as much influence, but I will tell you that people who have a lot of salt in their diet and have uncontrolled high blood pressure, those are the people that tend to get more frequent episodes of atrial fibrillation. So um, usually when we talk about salt intake, in people who have a diagnosis of hypertension or high blood pressure and they're on medications, they shouldn't even be having more than 2,000 milligrams of sodium per day. But unfortunately, it's very easy to exceed that amount in a typical North American diet. Oh, yeah. And even if you go out to a restaurant, usually the cooks will add salt for flavor. And so you really won't know how much sodium is in your food unless you ask. And even then, they won't be able to tell you. So I'm a visual person. What is 2,000 milligrams visually? What's it look like? I mean, is it a tablespoon? Is it, I'm not, I'm not a milligram. Like how much is that? So there's no good way that I can tell you exactly, but if you look at salt, if you look at food labels, you'll be able to see what is the percent recommended daily intake of sodium. Okay. And so if you are more than, if you're reaching more than 2,000 milligrams in a day, then you're exceeding the recommended salt intake. Okay. But then again, how can you tell if you go to a restaurant? You really can't. But if you are at home and you're cooking food for yourself and you have hypertension you should really avoid adding salt to your foods mm -hmm. for that reason. And processed foods have so much salt because of the exactly. shelf life. So just remember that too. Yeah, processed foods, certain canned goods, mm -hmm. that, those are also contributors. So I, I guess what I also like to know is you mentioned blood, blood thinners. Can you talk about what blood thinners do, why, the, why it's the, the importance of them? You know, you hear things like you can't hit your elbow on a table because if it starts to bleed, you're going to bleed out. I mean, what's the truth about blood thinners and the, the need for them in this particular case? Well, with blood thinners, the main risk is bleeding, and that's not a secret. Unfortunately, a lot of people fear taking blood thinners because of that mm -hmm. problem. But if we look at uh, what is your stroke risk and what is your bleeding risk, usually the stroke risk outweighs the bleeding risk in most people. So the way I see it, if you're going to take a blood thinner that can reduce your stroke by 60%, then that's probably more um, beneficial for you with the idea that you may have some bleeding issues down the line. Now, what kind of bleeding issues can we expect? Well, the most common ones have to do with bleeding in the gastrointestinal tract, so like stomach and intestines, although people can also have bleeding from their nose. They may have a little bit more bleeding if they cut themselves, but one of the most feared kind of bleeding complications is really bleeding in the brain. And so if you're on a blood thinner and you fall and hit your head, I would really recommend that you go to the emergency department and make sure that you're checked out. In terms of which blood thinners to use, Aspirin used to be one of the blood thinners that was used to mm -hmm. try to reduce stroke and atrial fibrillation, but that has fallen out of favor and that really does not reduce your stroke risk. It's more so. The so baby aspirin. Right. Okay. So that really is out the window, okay. unfortunately, these days. So 
The traditional blood thinner that's been around for decades is called warfarin, also known as Coumadin. And that's tried and tested and true, but it does require that you check your blood work every so often to make sure that your blood is thin enough within a therapeutic range. And it also does require that you eat the same amounts of green leafy vegetables from week to week, since the warfarin actually counteracts vitamin K, which is in those green leafy vegetables. There are some newer medicines on the market, the most common ones being Eliquis, also known as Apixaban, mm-hmm. Xarelto, also known as Rivaroxaban, and Pradaxa, also known as Dabigatran. And those are one of the, those are the newer medicines that don't require that you monitor your blood, do not require that you uh, watch your diet. And up until recently, there weren't really antidotes for these medications in case there was catastrophic bleeding. Although now those antidotes are available. So if there is some terrible bleed that happens that does require that you need to have the uh, blood thinner reversed, you can definitely go to the emergency department and they'll have it stocked. So, it, I mean, it definitely sounds like way more risk with not having a blood thinner when you have those, when you have this type of this thing. Right. Yeah. And in fact, there are some people that say, oh, I don't want to take a blood thinner because I don't want to uh, risk getting injured if I were to fall, uh, if especially have a mm-hmm. bad balance, people who maybe are not as mobile in their uh, older age. And in fact, there's actually been um, some studies that calculated how many times do you need to fall in a year to warrant being off blood thinners. Mm-hmm. And that number is 300. So unless you're falling every single day, you sh- that's not a Was good excuse Iowa, to be off blood thinners. Was that Iowa with ice and snow as well? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely higher risk in the wintertime. No, I, I kind of agree. I think sometimes we get things in our mind that scare us because it's it's not factual information. And this is factual information coming from you. So I think it's good for people to hear that. How long are you on blood thinners then, forever? Yeah, so unfortunately, once you have atrial fibrillation, uh, it's pretty much a lifelong commitment to being on blood thinners if your stroke risk is high enough. Now, there are people who are very young and they don't have those risk factors, so they are on blood thinners maybe for short periods of time. Mainly if they've had a cardioversion, so the electrical shock that resets the heart rhythm, they need to be on uninterrupted blood thinners for about a month. And then if they don't have any recurrence, they can be off blood thinners at that point. But that's only if you're young, you have really no uh, stroke risk factors in this situation. But most people, by the time I see them, they've already accumulated some risk factors that really require them to be on blood thinners to reduce their stroke risk. And although the blood thinners, they don't prevent strokes completely, they reduce it enough that your risk is now down to the general population usually. Okay. So I guess, you know, in closing up, because you've really answered a lot of my questions about this, and I've learned a lot. What would be the take-home message to our podcasters listening today? If they're feeling any of these symptoms, I guess. So I would say if you have symptoms of palpitations, shortness of breath, or lightheadedness that don't go away within a couple of minutes... I recommend that you get evaluated to find out what this is. It's very possible that the first couple times you go into the emergency room that you will be in normal rhythm and we'll have missed it, but don't give up. I do recommend that you do see a cardiologist if you have a documented heart rhythm disorder. And if you want to be able to prevent the arrhythmia from occurring altogether, you should definitely be referred to a cardiac electrophysiologist. And you can have further discussion about antiarrhythmic drugs versus being a candidate for catheter ablation. Well, thank you so much for all of these, the information you provided today. I think a lot of times we take our heart for granted and, um, you know, we hear these, we feel these flutters, we might be fatigued and it might occur in small episodes, but as the episodes get longer and bigger, as we age, like you said, or could, 
take it for real and get help if needed and talk to your cardiologist. So thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. It was fantastic information and our podcasters, um, I know we'll get a lot out of it. So thanks. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure.